You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. The Word of God is effective and efficient and sufficient for salvation and then teaching us beyond salvation. The Word of God is likened unto, do you remember a seed? When it's planted, then it brings forth whatever is in the DNA of that seed, the life that is planted there. You plant a tomato seed, you don't get okra, right? You get the new life of Christ, the Word of God planted in your heart, and what grows out of there, what causes the new birth, is the very DNA of the Word of God in a spiritual sense. When you plant a certain type of seed, you get that same type of plant. You're not going to plant tomato seeds and end up with okra. That's ridiculous. On the same token, if the wrong type of seeds get planted like for weeds, then guess what you're going to get? In today's message, Pastor Tom teaches us how crucial it is for the Word of God to be planted in our lives to produce godliness in us. There are so many other things that can be planted in our hearts, but we must repent of those and allow God's Word to take root. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message, Yes, I am trying to convert you. We are talking about the power of the Word of God to cause conversions. There isn't a single person who is a true believer in Christ who did not go through the process that we're learning from Acts chapter 2 about conversion, hearing hearing the Word of God and hearing it deeply. Do you remember that little saying Jesus had, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? I sat in church for many years. I didn't have ears to hear. There are people who come to church all over the land, and they don't have ears to hear. I hope that's not true of any of you, that you're hearing with your outward ear and not your inward ear, because that's what Christ meant. There is something you are to hear deep in your soul. You must hear it. If you don't hear the voice of God deep within your soul, showing you your failures, humbling your heart, making you aware of the judgment of God, that you will face the judgment of God. If you haven't heard that voice in your inner person, You're not converted yet. You're not a Christian. You're not right with God, and you're not safe. Conversion is a beautiful thing, but you have to listen to it for yourself. I know how it is. This would be a great message for so-and-so to hear. Well, I don't know whether it is or not, but I do know it's a great message for you to hear. Because we all had to hear it. We all had to be convicted by sin. We all had to have realization that we weren't good enough to enter into heaven, that the promises from the other religions and false Christianity were, were not true. The people that have died and passed on trusting in their own righteousness have perished. They'll never make it with God. But for us, there's hope, and for our children, there's hope, because we have the Word of God. So let's hear the Word of the Lord, Acts chapter 2, 
verses 37 to 41. Let's read it and continue our exposition of this. Wonderful text, very powerful text coming at the end of Peter's sermon, starting in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, that is the sermon, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Our thesis in this mini-series from this text is that Christian conversion is beautiful. Therefore, working for conversions in others, like Peter did, is noble. We should not be ashamed or have to be embarrassed when someone asks us, Are you trying to convert me? The answer I guess you took from the title of the series is, Yes, I am trying to convert you. Is exactly what I'm trying to do, and I'll keep working on it. What is clear is that God will not accept anybody unless they have a conversion, a radical, genuine conversion. And so we should add that it's not only beautiful to be converted, it's necessary. Now, the outline we're following is uh, several components of biblical conversion. Component number one, this is review from last time. Gospel preaching, hearing the word of God about Christ. This point just takes note of the very first few words there in verse 37. Peter had just finished preaching a powerful sermon. It was all about Jesus Christ. So they heard about Jesus Christ. They heard the word. They believed. And then they end up being converted by what mechanism? By the word of God. The word is the instrument. The word is the power. The word is the tool that converts people. We need to understand that. Can't bury the Bible, can't tone down the Bible. It's the Bible that is the power of salvation. So it has to be heard loudly and it has to offend. It has to do its work. Otherwise, people will not be converted. The crowd heard it and they responded. Now, not everybody that hears it responds. We know that. But it still is the power. It's the efficacy, we call it. The word of God is effective and efficient and sufficient for salvation and then teaching us beyond salvation. The word of God is likened unto, do you remember a seed? When it's planted, then it brings forth whatever is in the DNA of that seed, the life that is planted there. You plant a tomato seed, you don't get okra, right? You get the new life of Christ, the word of God planted in your heart, and what grows out of there, what causes of the new birth is the very DNA of the word of God in a spiritual sense. It is the power of God that draws people, people that look like they have no interest at all in God or Christ or anything. They get converted. How? By the word of God. Don't hide the word. Memorize it. Speak it. It's the power. It's likened unto a hammer. Why do we need a hammer? To break the pride of man. Nothing happens in your life until your pride is dealt with. 
The word is the sword that cuts deeply. Nobody likes being cut. I don't like being cut, but it's necessary. Why do you have to be cut and cut deeply? Because surgery needs to happen. Because uh, sin needs to be exposed. And here it's very clear that the Holy Spirit used the word to bring about, and this is the second component of conversion. We talked about it last time. Conviction of sins. Write that down. Conviction of sins. That's kind of step number two. Now, people respond in conviction in different ways. What you see here is an entire crowd that realizes they've killed their Messiah. And so there's deep sorrow that happens there. Some people are convicted of their sins and they just want to get busy changing their life around. They don't necessarily shed tears. But here, I imagine tears were shed. Conviction actually means the person becomes so acutely aware they've failed. There's a moral failure. Their life does not measure up to God. I know when someone was witnessing to me, that was what was clear to me. He said a lot of words. All I remember basically is I was in a lot of trouble with God. And I knew that was true. My conscience was on his side. He spoke the word. The word spoke to my conscience. I could lie outwardly, but inwardly I knew I'm a sinner. And anyone says they're not a sinner, they're lying to themselves as well as to you. Of course, we're all sinners. Everybody has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. That's a quote from the Bible. There can be no relationship with God until one realizes their moral failure. That's why when you hear preachers on TV and other places and they're not talking about the sinfulness of man, you know they're not of God. They probably haven't even felt the conviction themselves. You have to realize you failed with God. Your life is a failure. You don't measure up. You're not good. You don't seek after God. Your motives are not good. Your actions are not pure. What's the greatest commandment in all the Bible? That's what I tell people. The greatest commandment. What is it? it? And they quote the wrong thing. I said, it's this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I bet you've loved money more than God. I bet you've loved your pleasure and your comfort more than God. So you broke that commandment, and that's the greatest one. Now what are you going to do? And so with the realization of moral failure should also come this. I am under judgment. If one says, I morally failed, no big deal, everyone's morally failed, then they're not being convicted. The conviction is that I'm guilty, and the guilt deserves punishment. You have to come to the point where you say, it's right for God to reject me. It's right for God to inflict pain upon me. That's conviction. No one runs away from a fire until they're convinced it's out of control and it may burn them. Well, God is out of control. You can't control God. There is a fiery furnace. It's called the lake of fire. No one comes to Christ until they admit they're under judgment. The good news is there's a remedy for guilt. The remedy for guilt is not as psychologists try to teach these days, to sort of act like it's not real, to minimize it, to suppress it, to try to do good deeds, to try to overthrow your bad deeds. You can't. Once you've done something bad, that can't be erased. How do you deal with guilt? Well, the penalty has to be paid. Someone has to pay the penalty. Christ did. What's above my head there? We're taking that down today. What's above my head? It's a cross. Who suffered there? Christ. Whose sins did he suffer for? Not his own. Not his own. So sins had to be dealt with. God would not allow his son to escape wrath. Why not? Sins have to be paid for. 
God's holy. He's just. There's a law. It's been broken. It has to be paid for. There's only one who could pay for it. And he did. He did it voluntarily. He laid down his life. He did it so you could escape hell. He suffered and bled and died. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Those are his words from the cross, right? And he committed his soul to the Father. He suffered, he bled, and he died to deal with sin. What's our response? Not to pay for sins, but to believe in him, to trust him. The way that comes out here in verse 38, when they say, what should we do? He expresses this belief as another word that goes right along with belief, and that is repent. That's a verb. Believe is a verb. Repent is a verb. Repent. That's the third component of conversion, repentance, genuine repentance. Look at verse 38. What should we do? Repent. Repent. We started this last time. I am so tempted to talk the entire time today on repentance again. Because it's such a critical component of conversion to understand repentance. It's not a small doctrine. We talked about this last time. It was the very first word John the Baptist preached. It was the first real public proclamation of Christ. That word, repent. Peter and Paul preached it. It's the first thing Peter says here about their response. Repent. Paul goes to Mars Hill and all the philosophers, talks to the most educated people in the world. If you had a chance to gather all of the most educated people, as they count education, in the world, what would you tell them? Tell them to repent. They're no good. That's what Paul did to the philosophers on Mars Hill. God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they must repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world. What is repentance? The Greek term repentance, the noun, is metanoia. It's a compound term, rich in meaning, has two parts. Meta, which means after. It's a preposition that means after. Noia means the mind. It means an aftermind, a change in thought. Belief set that it was here, and now your beliefs have changed, and they're over here. It's a decisive change of mind. It's a decisive change of mind brought about by new information, new awareness. The gospel has now been preached to you, and you've heard God is holy, and he rejects you. He only loves you in the sense that he's willing to forgive you. He doesn't love you in the sense that he likes you and accepts you. He's rejected the human race. That's why we die. We mentioned that before. We're sinners and we die. The proof of that are all the tombstones that are out there. We all die. He's rejected us. Our lives are not good. But he still loves us and he's willing to pardon us. He's willing to erase our sin. But we have to have a decisive change of mind about it, a reversal in thinking. That's what you see here, isn't it? Look at these Jews. They're coming out into the street. This is a similar mob that would have been there crying to be able to fit in with their religious leaders, crying out for Jesus' crucifixion, right? Crucify, crucify. That's what the crowd in Jerusalem yelled just a few weeks prior to the statement. And now there's a very decisive change of mind. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus as Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. Look at him dying on the cross. Now the Holy Spirit has come. Signs have been given. Peter, the 11 apostles behind them, says Jesus is raised from the dead. He's exalted. God has made him both Lord and Christ. They hear that. The conviction of sins falls on them. And they realize 
this Jesus of Nazareth was and is the long-awaited Messiah. Complete reversal of their thinking. Please understand that in this scenario and in our lives as well, there's no middle ground. They were over here. They thought wrongly about Christ. They rejected Christ. Now they have to fully embrace Christ. There's nothing in between. There's no managing Jesus. And so, with the change of mind, must come also a change in purpose in life. There's some people say they believe in Christ, but you don't see their life change. So that means that they don't believe in Jesus, really. Because if they've really changed their mind, they're going to change what? Their actions, their purpose in life changes. Now they're declaring Jesus as Lord. What does that mean? Master, the one you obey, king, the one you're under the authority of. You can't say you believe in Jesus as Lord if your life now isn't working towards following him, his teachings, and obeying his word, right? It's got to be a complete reversal of your life. Now, you may have come from a background. You say, well, we were raised somewhat Christian. You know, we went to church, or at least grandma brought us to church, or someone back there brought you to church. And so you're in a quasi kind of Christian upbringing. What are you supposed to change? Well, you were living for yourself, or you were living for money, or you were told since you were a little girl, a little boy, you need to succeed in school, and it was all about your pride and your education and what you were going to become and your career, and you were living for that. Maybe you still are, and you have to repent of that. You have to turn from that false God and worship the true God in the right way. Again, there's no middle ground. can't work Jesus into your program. It doesn't work that way. This is why repentance is often illustrated as a U-turn. We know U-turns. We hate it when we come up to some place and we desperately got to go the other way and it says, no what? U-turn. And you go to the next one, it says, no U-turn. And you go to the next one, it says, forget about it. I'm going to break the law. I'm going to do a U-turn. I got to get around here. And so you try to figure out a way to make it the other direction. How it is in life. You're going this way. That's the wrong way. Yeah, but I thought it was the right way. There's a way that seems right to a man, book of Proverbs says, but its end is the way of death. Death. It doesn't matter how it seems to you. It matters how God's word says it. God's word is particular. Another way of saying that is God's word is narrow. Another way of saying that is God's word is pointed. It's going to tell you what is truth and anything that's not truth It's amazing. You have to tell people that. Anything that's not truth, guess what it is? It's not true. It's lies. Nowadays, it's all true. Well, if everything's true, nothing's true. One Greek-English lexicon, Thayer's, describes metanoia this way. A change of mind, especially the change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and sorrow for it and hearty amendment, the tokens and effects of which are now good deeds. So repentance has everything to do with conversion. One cannot be converted to Christ if he or she does not repent. No repentance, no conversion. You say, but what about faith? Well, faith and repentance are two 
sides of the same coin. Faith is the positive response of coming towards Christ. Repentance is a fuller term that talks about turning away from one set of false beliefs or false life and then turning toward Christ. It encompasses faith. It's a little more rounded in terms of what it describes. To repent, you must believe. And when you believe, you're automatically repenting from your previous false beliefs and your life of sin. John MacArthur in his book, well, the old title was called Faith Works. I don't know what it's called now. The title's been changed. But uh, he says this, conversion and repentance are closely related terms. Conversion occurs when a sinner turns to God in repentance faith. It is a complete turn around, an absolute change of moral and volitional direction. Such a radical reversal is a response the gospel calls for. Whether the plea to sinners is phrased as believe, repent, or be converted, each entails the other. If someone is walking away from you and you say, come here, it is not necessary to say, turn around and come here. The U-turn is implied in the direction. In like manner, where the Lord says, come to me, as in Matthew eleven twenty eight, the about face of repentance is understood. Nowhere does Scripture issue an evangelistic appeal that does not at least imply the necessity of repentance. And then he writes this, our Lord offers nothing to unrepentant sinners. Just look at Matthew nine thirteen, Mark two seventeen, or Luke Five thirty-two. That's why the related Hebrew term, we're dealing with Greek in the New Testament, the related Hebrew term in the Old Testament is shuv, S-U-B-V, if you're trying to figure out what I said, shuv. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines that Hebrew term this way. It means to turn back, to turn away from, or turn toward in the religious sense. The Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint consistently translates shuv with the terms epistrepho and apostrepho, which mean to turn and return. Repentance follows a turning about, which itself is a gift of God, end quote. The Old Testament prophets, many of you like to read through your Bible, you're reading through sections of the Old Testament and you're wondering how does any of that connect with what we're talking about in the book of Acts. Well, book of Acts, they're Jews to begin with, all the church is Jewish. They understood this concept of turning, of repentance, of change, because it was all over their scriptures. I'll give you some samples. In 2 Kings 17 and 13, it says this, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. He spoke to the Israelites through the prophets. He called the prophets my servants. He said, I'm going to speak to you. And what did the prophets keep saying to the people? Every generation kind of heard the same thing. Turn from your sinful ways. Turn from your independence. Come back to your God. There was no real faith if they didn't turn back and away from their sinful practices. Some people want to say they believe in Jesus, but hang on to their sinful way of life. Well, it's clear you can't do that. You'll have to make a choice. Either you love your sin, keep your sin, and burn in hell, or you can let go of your sin and have the joys of Christ in this life and for eternity. It's really not much of a choice if you think about it. 
Your sins are only pleasurable for a little period of time. Holy people are happier people. They are. Satan's lie says, but holiness and obedience, that's what I have to do, but it's not all that much fun. You're wrong. Your mind is too corrupted by the way the world thinks, which has the devil behind it. Another sample, Ezekiel 33, 11. This is God talking to Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Oftentimes, we're afraid to admit to trying to convert others. We fall into the trap of wanting to not offend anyone. The truth is that the gospel is offensive. The gospel is convicting. When you heard the gospel, weren't you convicted? Didn't it cause you to make a change in your life? This is good. If someone is heading the wrong way, they need to change directions. They need to repent, and we need to boldly speak the truth. If you enjoyed today's message on Discover Hope, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. That's 443-200-HOPE. We'd also like to ask you to prayerfully consider donating to this ministry to help us expand the reach of the gospel. You can give securely online at hopebible.org. Do you live in the area of Columbia, Maryland? If so, you're invited to become part of our Sunday morning gatherings here at Hope Bible Church. Join us for a morning of Bible study, worship, and fellowship. Find out more by visiting our website. Again, that's hopebible.org. Repentance is a difficult topic because it offends people's pride. No one likes to be told what they're doing is wrong, especially when they like the things they're doing. The reality is that as difficult as the message of repentance is, it's a message so important that people's eternal fate depend on their response to it. Join us next time on Discover Hope as Pastor Tom teaches us exactly how important repentance truly is. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Discover Hope. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting hopebiblechurch.org. And be sure to join us again right here on Discover Hope. Discover Hope.